Hey, this is Matt Markin, and in episode 45 of the Adventures in Advising podcast, we chat with Ryan Sheckel and Dr. Karen Archambault. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And if you don't already, check us out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Advising Podcast, and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado, here's episode 45. Welcome to episode 45 of Adventures in Advising. It's our 20th episode of 2021. Yes, sir. Episode 45. And I'm going to turn it back over to you, Colm. In case anyone missed the last episode, there was some news that was given about the future of the podcast and us as hosts. So uh, spoilers ahead. This will be my final episode as co-host. As I mentioned in the last episode, I'm going to be on the road quite a bit for the foreseeable future and therefore unable to dedicate the time needed to the podcast. But I am leaving it in Matt's capable hands and I want to wish him continued success. The past two years have been brilliant. Over the course of 45 episodes, I've had the opportunity to speak with more than 100 people from around the globe, to learn from them and to be inspired by them. Thank you to all those guests who joined us and a special thank you to you, our listeners. I have enjoyed this experience immensely and I know that I will carry it with me into the future. Very well said. And hey, the chair is always there if it works out in your schedule to return back, even if it's an interview here and there. It's definitely been a blast doing this together for 45 amazing episodes and good luck to you on all the cool things that are going to be coming up. But of course, the show must go on and let's get to it, I guess. And here's our interview with our very first guest ever on this podcast, and that's with Ryan Sheckel. back to the podcast, Ryan Sheckle, who's the Assistant Director of Pre-Professional Health Careers at Texas Tech University. Longtime listeners will remember Ryan has appeared on the podcast before and now for his third interview. And his first interview was on our very first podcast episode. So Ryan's first interview discussed his presentation at the 2019 Nakata Annual Conference, the Academic Advising Approaches book, and also a little bit about pop culture. In Ryan's second interview, we chatted about his background in higher ed, being the Assistant Director at Texas Tech, the history of Texas Tech's mascot, more about presentations, more about pop culture, and his time at the 2020 virtual Nakata conference. All this was from episode 22 of the podcast. Now we have Ryan back to chat with some more. Ryan, how are you? I'm doing great, Matt. It's uh, good to see you again in a way that is becoming far too familiar. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed uh, seeing everybody as well in person uh, in Cincinnati. Yeah, that that was a lot of fun. Um, it was just great being back to seeing people after two years. Um, it wasn't as awkward as I thought it was going to be, but I thought, yeah, I, I had a great time. And it's been almost a year since we've had a podcast interview with you. So what's new with you? What's new at Texas Tech University? Well, um, we have been on campus um, at, as an advising office uh, since August of 2020. But this fall semester was sort of our institution's return to uh, fully in-person uh, offerings. I know I, I haven't done the research on it, but I know that 
we still have more um, virtual and hybrid modality options than I think would be considered normal, uh, pre-pandemic normal. Um, but, you know, as far as percentages go, um, the vast majority of on-campus, um, on-campus housing, uh, you know, on-campus programming is all returning to what people are thinking of as normals. Um, and, uh, and so that's been interesting, you know, the energy definitely feels different, um, than last fall semester. Uh, the, we've met with students, um, I would still say probably at least half still virtually, but, um, meeting with students in person, uh, is something we haven't done in a while and we're doing that too. And, and sorting through how do we do that appropriately and, and safely. Um, but you know, it, it definitely feels, we had our first major uh, on-campus recruiting event. Uh, Monday, yesterday. Uh, and and that type of energy is something that we haven't had uh, in a long time. And, you know, coming off of a, a fantastic conference and stuff, uh, returning to a big on-campus event, um, it, it's still not normal, um, but there's definitely a lot more uh, energy and effort um, in that in-person space. How was your energy coming from being at the conference presenting and then flying back and then going right into presentations for students? Well, I have to say, I know for so many folks that travel was disrupted significantly Saturday and Sunday. And um, I was fortunate that that was not the case for me. Um, I was definitely tired. Um, I, I remember uh, sleeping a lot um, Saturday night um, and into Sunday morning. Uh, and then we went and did some stuff We got lunch and had some time with the family, um, came back uh, to settle in for a little bit of a moment of, of time in between things and uh, falling asleep on the couch. Um, and it had nothing to do with the game that I was watching, uh, but uh, but I was I'm still tired. Um, so not only did we have a recruiting event on uh, Monday, um, yesterday morning, um, but then that was like eight to noon. Uh, but then I, also my class that I teach is uh, Monday afternoons. And uh, I was sitting uh, on like the little stage that is in the room that I teach in. And normally when I start class, as people are filtering in and logging in a top hat and, and taking attendance that way, I usually stand. Um, but I was, I was not about standing. So I had, there's a chair and I was sitting in the chair and one of the students came in and he was looking around like he wasn't sure if it he was in the right place. And so I just asked him, I was like, do you think you're in the wrong place? And he's like, well, it's Monday, right? And I was like, yeah, it's two o'clock. This is seminar in health professions. And he goes, okay. I was like, is it weird? Cause I'm sitting down and he's like, maybe. Uh, so I was like, I was just too tired. I almost taught class uh, sitting down, but I have a hard time um, lecturing um, sitting. Uh, so I eventually did, but I was home early yesterday and I was in bed early yesterday and uh, recovering from a fantastic time um, for sure. Yeah, uh, don't get me started on uh, travel and flight cancellations. <laughs> that was me over the weekend, but, you know, we're back at it. Right. Um, talk about your class again, because what class are you teaching and, and how's that going this semester? Um, so uh, when I took my position as assistant director for uh, pre-health advising, um, the former dir uh, director was teaching a, a seminar in health professions class. And the idea is, um, for pre-health students, let's introduce them to the range of roles and professions and fields and perspectives um, in uh, in actual professional schools, medical schools, pharmacy schools, and so on. Um, interprofessionalism is a big part of their curricular model. Uh, and, and so there's a benefit to the pre-health student to understand um, their own professions, of course, but also how the, their profession will interact with, relate to, and uh, benefit from other professional fields. 
Uh, so there's a multiple learning outcomes for the course, but one of them is understanding interprofessionalism. Another is understanding how to be a, a strong applicant for professional school. And uh, ultimately I've added uh, to really understand themselves, which those go hand in hand. Uh, so we're currently in uh, a phase of the course, the middle third, uh, where we're talking about self-assessments and developing a vocabulary and sense of self. Um, so it's, it's learning about your profession, learning about yourself and learning about healthcare in, in general. Um, previously, the way the course was taught was that we'd have speakers um, from sort of each of the professional fields each week. Um, and they'd be there live. They'd, they'd do their talk. I would try to influence um, those lectures as much as I could to really personalize uh, the speaker and tell their story and, and how they became a healthcare professional and not just recruit for their programs. Um, and this year, uh, I was not, it's not that I don't appreciate those speakers' time and energy, but the where it's scheduled during the day, it's not particularly convenient for them. Um, and I was really looking to make the course a little bit more of something that I was contributing as instructor and not just scheduling speakers. So I have all those lectures from previous semesters recorded. Um, and, uh, and so I was like, Let, I'm going to flip the class. So on Blackboard, that's our learning management system. Um, I would, I'll post the lecture um, the, the Tuesday after we meet for the next week. They watch the lecture, they take a quiz, they have a, a forum discussion post where they respond to other people and to my prompt. And then I give a lecture that sort of wraps it up and encapsulated usually three or four main points um, from the, the recorded lecture. Um, and usually they're about similar topics uh, built around our elements of competitive and compelling things like understanding your profession, understanding your sense of passion, um, information literacy, uh, and, and those sorts of things. So I've, I've changed the way the course is taught, uh, which means I have to work a lot harder this semester. <laughs> Um, but it's been really good for me. I, I've, I've mentioned multiple times in, in my sort of summary lectures at the end of the week um, that hearing the lectures again and listening for that content or reading that content um, in a new way for a new purpose has really um, uh, broadened and deepened my understanding of the course and, and how we try to reach those outcomes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of more work on you, but a lot of benefit to the student, though, and utilizing what you already have. So the recordings uh, with the speakers, flipping that approach, and then adapting your class based off the time of day it is. So I think that's really awesome. Now, we were talking earlier about travel prior to that, the conference. So just recently, Nakata had their 2021 annual conference, both a virtual component, but both of us got to attend in person after two years. Any takeaways for you uh, now that you kind of get a little bit of time to reflect back on last week? Um, I, you know, people talk about the pandemic uh, and the ways that it's disrupted our thinking, uh, the opportunities um, to, I don't know, rethink um, how we share content or, or how we interact with our stakeholders. Um, typically, when we talk about those things, uh, you know, and understand, understandably, our actual day jobs, um, uh, what we're paid to do. Uh, that's usually the perspective that I take, you know, um, I've asked, been asked multiple times, uh, you know, what thing did you do or what strategy do you use during the pandemic that you think will persist, that you'll retain or whatever. Um, but I, I will say that, um, for the purpose of the conference and, and takeaways is because it was hybrid and because there were on demand and recorded sessions, sessions recorded live there, um, that the conference isn't really over. Um, we're not um, attending live or uh, synchronous things anymore, but we have asynchronous um, access to this content 
um, things that I wasn't able to attend because I was attending something else I wanted to attend. And so um, I, I think, uh, I don't know, I don't imagine, um, I don't know if it will persist, um, if we'll continue to record on-demand versions of our sessions in advance of in-person conferences. Um, but that's kind of an interesting idea. Uh, as I was on my traveling on my way back, uh, I was thinking about the sessions that, that are were either recorded in advance of the conference or recorded live that I wanted to watch or maybe even watch again, which is something that's never happened before. Um, it didn't really change the way I approached attending the conference. Uh, it's not like I was like making choices about which one is recorded and which one isn't. I went to the sessions I wanted to go to most, uh, but I realized I have an opportunity post conference to stretch the conference out in content. Previously, I'd made the pitch um, that the best thing to do um, or the best takeaway from a conference is that you don't have to end the conferencing, the, the interaction with colleagues. Uh, and now the content doesn't have to end either. Uh, that's sort of interesting. I, I would say that the biggest shift or change to how I approach the conference in person, though, was um, the fantastic and amazing development of the scholarly papers session. Um, obviously, being a part of that, um, you know, as sort of like the task force or work group that was getting that to from idea to realization. Um, I already knew about it, uh, but I would say as an attendee, um, that's definitely uh, a session type and an approach to being at a conference that was brand new and, uh, and fascinating uh, and really beneficial to me as an attendee. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Do you happen to know if those sessions were recorded, the scholarly paper sessions? They were not. Um, and, and I'll say um, that if certainly um, I don't speak for everybody on the group, um, but I don't think that they would disagree that just the work of getting those sessions to happen was um, for the first time ever um, for Nakata um, and under the format and structure of having two papers um, with a discussant um, after the after the author's dis- um reviewed their papers and their research, um, and then doing Q and a, um, there were enough moving parts as it was for the first time around. And because also those, uh, the purpose of scholarly paper sessions is to in part help, um, authors develop their papers as they lead to publication. There's some interest in, um, uh, keeping those still somewhat, um, protected as far as the content and the information. Um, not that, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sincerely mean this for anyone who has presented a non-scholarly paper session, which has been the dominant and continues to be the dominant session type, um, can't publish or isn't thinking about those things. But that is very much the intent uh, behind a scholarly paper session type um, is to develop those papers for publication. Um, so uh, besides trying to pull it off for the first time in the format that we're pulling off and also wanting to make sure that we're um, um, being... Uh, careful and uh, cognizant of and conscientious about our authors and their, their research. Um, at this point, um, there wasn't any recorded, there was the possibility that papers would be uploaded to the app 
Um, and, and so there may be some of those sessions uh, types where the papers are uploaded. Um, but any of the uh, any of the scholarly paper sessions that I was in, other than the one I moderated, I also live tweeted those. Um, so you can go look for um, any of those uh, threads from those scholarly paper sessions if you want to get a peek into what they're like. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of like misconceptions with writing and doing scholarly, um, turning like let's say a presentation into potentially into um, some type of article or publication. I know Dr. Wendy Troxell always says, record your presentations. And that's literally like your first draft um, of an article. But I think a lot of people think, oh, that's not me. That That's not something I can do. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, certainly. I uh, There are times when people talk to me about um, sort of my presence in this space, not just this podcast space or but the academic advising space, Nakata and that kind of stuff. And they they assume, I think, maybe it's because of the way I talk about things or my presentations that that's just comes naturally to me. Um, it certainly doesn't. I, I don't know if it's because my background is in education and I was first uh, ever thought about ideas and um, content from how I would relay it to students or to learners. Um, but I think around outlines and lesson plans and, and ultimately presentations. That's the first way that my brain creates um, something that I'm going to share with other people. I share a lot of ideas that are far less formed. But if I think about something formalizing, my first place that I think about it formalizing is in a, a presentation or an instructional note. Um, and I also, uh, because I tested well, never took a college writing course. Um, and so when I had assignments, you know, in graduate school or in, you know, junior, senior level course or in my undergrad, my papers, they were fine. You know, it wasn't like I was a fantastic writer, certainly wasn't recognized for the strength or proficiency of my writing. Um, and, uh, and, and so getting to the point of I've got an idea, I can see a presentation in it, and then I'm going to translate it to a written product is those are steps that not only are there my own personal um, development and uh, issues that are in the way, but there's also work and life and finding the time to do those things. Um, and also the skills. Um, so I, I think, you know, yes, there are some folks for whom writing will come naturally. And there are some folks for whom writing will be their first product. And that's fantastic. If that comes naturally to you, you're going to find the opportunities a little bit more accessible. Um, but I, I will say, as someone who's been advising for now nearly 20 years and presenting since 2003 at annual conferences, um, my first published piece uh, was something that uh, you and I did together after um, last year's uh, virtual annual conference. Um, so it's, it's doable. It just means that there's, um, there may be some time and development. Part of that was signing up for a Nakata writing group. Um, and that was really helpful to go into a, a space where other people had similar goals and interests, but were also looking for support and help. Uh, and so finding collaborators, finding support, um, and seeing the possibility, but also leveraging technologies. Um, I know that a lot of the stuff that you and I worked on and can, are continuing to work on came from an actual recording, um, a transcription using otter.ai. Um, eventually, I need to get some sort of sponsorship from them. Um, but, you know, a, a way of getting the words from our mouths to the screen or to the paper, so to speak, um, you know, it, it, it may not come naturally, but there are lots of ways that you can start to build that proficiency. Um, and reviewing as well. Um, I'm a reviewer for the Nakata Review. I've reviewed for 
a Frontiers in Education publication, certainly reviewed plenty of conference proposals. I think I'm now beginning to understand what writing looks like um, in different settings and, and different opportunities to publish. Yeah, and also it's a process. So I know society nowadays, you want everything done like absolutely right then and you know there, get it done within a day or however long. But it's something that is going to be, you, you have a starting point and that end might be weeks away, months away, year away, but you keep working at it and, and you'll get it done. Um, but I do want to jump into the Cincinnati conference because not only did you present, but one of the things that as of the Cincinnati conference, you are now the new chair of the theory, philosophy and history of advising community uh, through Nakata. So first, congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, and aside from the title of the advising community, um, listeners may want to know, you know, they wanted to know about the various types of advising communities within Nakata. So I think this will be a great opportunity to talk about this one. Um, how would you describe the theory, philosophy and history of advising community? Well, so when I was an advisor um, in our school of art and was the only advisor um, in my building, um, the only person doing the job that I did um, in my academic unit, um, I was really starting to sort through, is this a long-term profession? Um, I had taught for a couple of years. I'd been in advising for a while. I'd changed roles in advising. And I was like, what am I what am I getting? You know, what is this profession doing to satisfy my values and and, and my passions and my interests? Um, certainly, I, I really enjoy the interaction with students in an educational setting. Um, definitely enjoy the campus culture and all that stuff. But I was like, long term, what does a career in advising look like? Uh, and up until that point, I mean, like I said, my first annual conference was 2003. I presented a or co-presented um, a pre-conference session and then two concurrent sessions. I didn't know any better. So I was involved in the association, but I wasn't doing things like attending um, the, the town hall business meeting. I wasn't going to advising communities at the time. They were called commissions and interest groups. Um, I was attending sessions, learning things, and then sort of finding the people I came to the conference with. So in 2013, um, I decided, you know what, I, I'm going to do more. This is a very um, uh, armchair, uh, amateur sort of um maybe perhaps misunderstanding of the year of yes concept. Um, but I was like, I'm just going to say yes to things. I'm just going to say yes to possibilities and be open to it. And so I attended my first theory, philosophy and history um, commission meeting um, at that annual conference. And, uh, and I was like, oh, they're talking about the ideas that I'm interested in. Uh, it's not that there aren't other advising communities that I'm a member of or that I find interesting. And, and we certainly can talk about that later. Uh, but theory, philosophy, and history, sitting in that meeting um, and listening to the things that they were talking about, I was I was definitely thinking, these are the folks I want to get to know. Um, these are the conversations I want to have. They're, they're conversations that are ultimately idea-based in a lot of ways. It's not that they don't then translate to practice. Um, but, you know, the philosophies that inform how we can practice um, and uh, do the work or approach the work that we're doing, um, the theories uh, that then inform our strategies and, and our approaches um, and our histories. In particular, um, I, I did a post-bac certification in history. Um, and I always, I really love to get to the root of things. So sort of where was where did this begin? What was its origins? And, and then sort of understand its, its evolution and change. And so those are the topics um, that theory, philosophy, and history of advising community tends to bring into that space. I mean, a lot of that is represented in scholarly publication or 
or presentations of the, that nature. But a lot of times um, developments and changes and, and things that are happening in higher education and in our society and our world around them are very relevant to the conversations that we're having. Um, like I said, those deeper, meaningful conversations. Um, and, and it's not that practice and strategy and approach isn't deep or meaningful to people. It's just what I was looking and needing, looking for and needing to connect with. And it was in that advising community or I found it. Um, so, you know, because I was saying yes to things and the, the opportunity has presented itself to be a steering committee member, um, I was like, yeah, let's do that. And so, you know, for um, since 2014, I've been on the steering committee um, for the theory, philosophy, theory, philosophy and history of advising community. And uh, and seeing other people lead in that space was really helpful um, to get a sense of what is a what does contribution look like? It doesn't necessarily have to be those sort of standard models. It can be more relational. Uh, it can be more aspirational. And those are things that were always interesting to me as well. So our community, you know, just as the name says, um, talks about those things, um, tries to find where people are having uh, purposeful and interesting interactions around those topics. Um, and then also um, is doing everything we can to encourage members in all the advising communities to understand the theories, philosophies, and histories and inform those perspectives as well. And for you as chair, it's a, it's a two-year commitment? It is, yeah. And, you know, what's weird is on the front end when, you know, thinking about nomination, thinking about accepting a nomination, thinking about the running, uh, and, you know, I was thrilled to have someone else to run against. Uh, me personally, I think that running unopposed, when it comes to organizational health, um, if if um, elections um, and some level of competition in the marketplace of ideas is part of what your organization does, if you're running unopposed, that there's in some ways, not that anyone who ran unopposed is not legitimate in their leadership role, but there's somehow a loss there. Um, and so uh, Aaron uh, uh, Donahoe Rankin was my, who ran against me. And I, I, that was fantastic. We had to meet the candidates meeting where other people could hear our perspectives and our platforms and what we're gonna do. Um, but all of that on that front end, made the two years seem significant and not that it's not, but going to the conference and conducting uh, the business meeting, our, our outgoing chair, uh, CJ Venable wasn't able to attend. And so um, I was conducting that meeting. Uh, we uh, did include them though in the, by zoom in the meeting and, and put the microphone down on my laptop, micro uh, camera or speaker. And we, we made it work. Um, but but actually conducting that business meeting for the first time, I was like, this is going to go so fast. This is, is going to fly by. Once you start thinking about, okay, we're going to plan quarterly meetings for the steering committee members, and we're going to have quarterly um, uh, either Zoom or some other type of content available, ideally partnered with other advising communities. Um, and then we're going to have sort of the natural uh, rhythm of conference proposals, conference uh, or proposal reading and reviewing and then selection and then an annual conference, you already realize how fast your first year is going to go. Um, and so I'm excited about the opportunity um, and I'm anxious to make sure that we, we make the most of it um, of these two years. Um, and that um, I'm also um, anxious to make sure I honor um, the responsibility um, that a chair position provides me. Uh, it's going to go fast. Yeah, and I know you just started in the position, but any any thoughts so far and any goals you want to accomplish maybe within this this year? Yeah, I, I you know, one of the things it's important to, to know is being on the steering committee, I've seen multiple chairs 
Um, and, and everyone has had their own approach um, to leading this community. Uh, but given the tight window of uh, chairs, uh, tenures, uh, I decided that I, I didn't necessarily want to set my own priorities. Um, we, we have some we have a lot of fantastic folks, um, uh, big thinkers and strategic thinkers um, and creative thinkers um, and uh, critical thinkers. And so I, I wanted to harness um, that uh, opportunity um, and the resources available. And, and so we started our business meeting in Cincinnati in person, um, but we'll conclude it virtually um, on November 11th. Um, and I, I was just asking, you know, based on my background in organizational theory, um, that we identify three priorities for this year um, and that we organize, organize ourselves around those priorities. Uh, so some came out um, during conversation, um, definitely the role of history. Um, we're at a unique place uh, as an association that so many of the people who've been influential um, and critical in the development of academic advising and the association are here and happy and willing and excited to share their perspectives in, in the history and growth of academic advising and the association. Um, and so that focus on history um, definitely sounds like it will be one of our priorities. Um, the, you know, the other thing that I was thinking about as a priority um, is that there are voices that are going unheard in theory, philosophy, and history, whether they're um, underserved uh, populations, underrepresented populations, marginalized populations, um, or um, there are people in the association who feel like they have an interest, but that couldn't be them because they haven't done things. They're too new. Um, or they focus on one thing for, you know, too long or whatever. Um, so trying to find a way to um, broaden access to theory, philosophy, and history as a conceptual base. Um, but that's only two. Um, that's only two priorities that I could say we've begun to identify. And so our goal for our November 11th conclusion of our meeting is to let's finalize our priorities. Let's um, get some work groups established. Um, steering committee members will be a part of leading those groups, but so will members of the advising community. Um, and I really like to produce um, some tangible results um, in each of those priority areas. And how does one join if they're interested, whether it's the this advising community or any Nakata advising community? Right. So when you log into the Nakata website, if you're a member, um, there will be a tab uh, that says my communities um, in your sort of member profile. Uh, and you can edit and review those. Um, the association allows people to select four. Uh, advising communities. And, um, and so you can add theory, philosophy, and history, and then three others. Um, and then uh, and because uh, you'll have that um, sort of tag on your member account, when official uh, communication goes out through the association about a specific advising community, um, you'll be included in that communication. On our uh, community page, though, um, there is also a listserv. Um, and the instructions are on that page on how to join the listserv. Um, I think everyone has feelings about listservs. Um, uh, I think for the theory, philosophy, and history of advising community, making the listserv um, be um, relevant uh, is really our, our, our biggest concern. Uh, as a communication channel, um, I think there are times when we have energy in that channel and there are times when we don't. Um, but I can conclusively say I have never said that the listserv for theory, philosophy, and history has been a distraction or a problem. Um, if anything, it's I'd like to see a little bit more activity there. Uh, so signing up for our listserv is not going to uh, spam your inbox with tons of uh, pointless emails where we're debating Foucault or something like that, um, which is a philosopher for those who don't know. Um, but uh, it, it's another way to connect with us. Uh, we're finally also on Facebook. Um, the Advising Philosopher uh, is a Facebook group that our community created 
a while back as another way of engaging with um, members. Maybe it'll be on TikTok next. I don't know. Um, I, you know, I'll say this. There are some members, and they know who they are, uh, of our advising community who absolutely need to do some TikTok dance videos for us. So. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Now, I, I assume that with, uh, with the chairing this advisory committee, that's one of yours that's on your membership. Uh, do you mind sharing what the other ones that you're a part of? Sure. Um, so since we advise health profession students, I've been a part of the health professions advising community since 2015. When I joined here, I updated my community membership. Um, you know, there, that community also has a, a sort of a reciprocal or um, uh, a related connection with the NAAHP, the National Association of Advisors for Health Professions. Um, and so those two communities sort of feel like um, uh, like they're cousins uh, in, in ways that the advising community and uh, NAAHP. Um, but then I'm also, as an administrator, um, looking for uh, another gap in my personality to be filled, and that's my lack of proficiency in assessment. So I've been a part of the assessment um, advising community. Um, and then also because I lead a team of five uh, pre-health advisors, primary role staff advisors, um, advisor training and development um, has been a community that I've been a, a part of. And um, I really appreciate um, the leadership uh, of Gavin Farber in, in that role. Um, excited to see what's going to be developing in theory philosophy, or sorry, in uh, advisor training and development um, in the coming years um, after that really rich period of uh, Gavin's chair. And maybe you'll know where I'm going to go with this, but with the advisor training development, uh, anything interesting that is coming out of that community? Well, um, I know that the um, uh, advisor training and development book uh, publication from Nakata, um, the second edition was reaching sort of that natural um, period in time where they're reviewing it and seeing what needs to be updated. And so I was um, really excited uh, to have a proposal accepted to write a voices of the field portion for the um, theory chapter of that third edition. Um, we've submitted our um, sort of peer reviewed, our content editor reviewed um, uh, manuscripts to the copy editors. Um, so we're moving into that, that next phase of the publication process. Um, which is scary. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's the first time I've ever done anything like that, but it's really exciting. Again, going through that iterative process of turning in a proposal, being selected, um, and then sort of the edit and review process with our content editors. Um, I learned a ton about my own writing uh, and about writing for, for audiences. Um, but then um, moving into copy editing, I'm like, oh, that's so formal and specific. Uh, so uh, it's my understanding that that third edition will be uh, published in time for the 2022 annual conference in Portland. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. Well, that's exciting. And it, and kind of going back to what I said, it's it's a process. 
it takes time but like you're saying you're enjoying kind of seeing a lot of this behind the scenes kind of thing and all that's involved in it right the work and the people who do the work um it's it's no small task and if you ever read the acknowledgements portion of any book uh, they always talk about how much work goes into getting a book on the shelf um and uh that is uh no less true uh for these publications the amount of attention and energy and effort that is poured into uh, these important items in our literature, um, in, in our, our growing profession, um, uh, being a, a small part of that and getting just a little bit of a glimpse, uh, you really de- develop not only an appreciation for the people doing it, but then, you know, I look at my bookshelf and I see how many I've got stacked up behind me right there. And just just the amount of work that goes into that, there, de- you develop a different perspective of it, I guess. Um, and uh, And certainly, you know, how um, how real it is for the people involved in it. And it becomes more personal. Yeah. And if you're not watching us on YouTube and you're listening to the podcast, the oh. audio version, uh, he's got a stack of books and I think it's the power story from Peter Hagen's probably the top one there. And there's definitely no ranking. Um, yeah. I'll say that they just, well, it's, it's, the, it's the one that's on, on top <laughs> the of on top. the rest of the book. Right. Um, and then <laughs> academic advising that. approaches, the new advisor guidebook, the, the master um, advisor uh, text that that sort of trilogy. Um, that's the whole thing that kicked off my crazy Star Wars thing. Actually, was that they were releasing a trilogy of books, and I was like, I know trilogies because I know Star Wars. So if you want Ryan to buy any of your books, if you're if you're selling them, have a trilogy. He will right. be the first in line. I'll be there. So you did a, a couple presentations as well at the conference. So the one I I want to talk to you about with the time we have left. Um, it's not the narrative one that we did. Now we can always talk about that at a different time. You know plenty about that. But we, uh, you did one on, tell me, uh, so you did communities of practice, how they wither and die and what to do about it. Tell me about this presentation. Sure. It, for those who know me, um, I've, I've said multiple times, uh, one of my favorite things to do is subvert expectation. You know, the dominant narrative is always something that I think should be problematized and uh, queried and thought critically about. Um, And even in your own life, right? We develop themes and we become known for something. Uh, And uh, and certainly I I felt like anyway that people who knew of my presentations from previous conferences knew that they were fun, knew that they were pop culture, knew that they would be entertaining in ways. Um, And so when I was developing this presentation, largely it came from one article. It came from something that wasn't even the focus of the article about communities of practice. Um, There was an article uh, from Cox in 2005, I believe, um, where he was reviewing sort of the status of the the idea of communities of practice and how they've been adopted in other disciplines. So it was was a literature review um, looking at four significant publications on communities of practice um, and just summarizing what you would find in the literature. Uh, And there was one column, 75% of one column on one page of this article that had eight items that uh, drawing off of someone else's work uh, and the application of communities of practice in healthcare, uh, that there were things about the nature of 21st century work that undermined the development of communities of practice. And as I was reading the eight things, I was like, every one of those sounds like academic advising, not just during the pandemic, but especially during the pandemic. So um, I, that was the the genesis of, I, like, I, I marked it up and I wrote like a bracket and I said, presentation. I was like, right here, these eight points, this is a presentation. Um, and then, you know, I continued to move on to understanding what communities of practice are. 
It's an idea of it's a group of people that share an interest and a common task um, in a thing that they do, uh, typically the work that they do. Um, and that through their regular interaction, they're seeking to improve how they do that work or that task that they share together. Um, and uh, we've seen a couple of people in advising literature and scholarship cite communities of practice as something of value for academic advising. Um, and so I was like, well, I hear about it. And every time I've ever talked to somebody about communities of practice, they're like, oh yeah, Laban Banger, like it's good stuff. And I was like, I don't know anything about it. So that's how I started. I went down that rabbit hole. I was like, where did it start? What does it mean? I ran into those eight things that undermine it. Uh, and that's how that presentation began. Um, the Western New York Advising Conference um, went entirely virtual last year. Uh, John Sauter is a good friend of mine and they were looking for conference proposals. And I was like, let's do it. You know, it's, it's coming up. It's going to force me to get those ideas out into something that I can do, which is a presentation, um, as we've discussed. Uh, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to take a completely different tone. I'm going to take a tone that is in ways shocking. Um, and that's how in my crazy brain, the title came up of, of how communities of practice don't flourish. Because if academic advising work tends to be um, in the characteristics or in the structure of these eight things that work against communities of practice, then if we're going to adopt a communities of practice concept, whether in our scholarship or in our practice, we should know about them. We should anticipate them instead of sitting back and going, you know, why aren't our communities of practice really taking root and, and flourishing? We can say, oh, well, there are some things about the nature of advising work that are working against our interests. Um, and that was the idea behind it. Um, I'm, I still, I think I was fun, um, but we did in the presentation, you know, collect some data and see if everyone else felt like these were also characteristics of academic advising. Yeah. Now, in, at least in the recorded one that, that I watched, you had mentioned that when you started advising that, you know, you were in a centralized advising office and that mm -hmm. actually had a big influence on your conception of communities of practice and your approach to academic advising. Uh, what was it about having that centralized approach that had that impact for you? Well, so in the, the origins of the concept of communities of practice is something called legitimate peripheral participation. Um, sometimes that looks like mentoring. Sometimes that looks like apprenticeship. Sometimes it just looks like I'm learning on the job alongside others who are proficient. Um, and when I came into the um, what is now called Explore, uh, the Exploratory Undecided Advising Office in 2002, there were others who were already doing that work who were proficient and I was new to it. Um, and in having colleagues who I could um, sometimes inadvertently overhear through our cubicles um, and sometimes actually shadow and sometimes have meaningful conversations about like that, I, I didn't know any better. Just like uh, presenting at annual conferences, I didn't know any better. I didn't know any better that there were, I mean, I was aware that there were advisors who weren't in centralized offices or were in advising offices where they were the only advisor. Um, but I grew up, I learned to think of myself as somebody who was in a community of practice. I didn't have that language at that time, uh, but I knew that I could ask somebody for something. I knew I could learn from them. I knew that I could develop around our centralized shared task, an identity that says, yes, this is me. This is my work. It's not the job that I do. It's who I am. And fundamentally, if a community of practice is going to flourish and develop, the individuals has to, have to conceive of their shared task as fundamental to their identities, as opposed to the thing that pays the bills. And I know that there are times when we need the thing to pay the bills, 
But I think if we're going to reach potential as a community of practice or as a professional community, at some point there has to be an aspirational element that says, yes, I'm adopting this as central to my identity. Um, it's not necessary, but I think it is certainly part of becoming something more. Um, so many of the other professions, I think if you spoke to members of those professional fields, um, separating the work they do from who they are is antithetical to their conception of self. Um, and I'm all about work-life balance. And I understand that there's more to a person than the work that they do. Um, but that relationship is central to the idea of community practice and growing up or, or starting my professional journey um, in a centralized advising practice meant that when I moved out of it, I missed it. And when I moved out of it, as I was searching for it, I found it in a different community through the theory, philosophy, and history of advising community and through Nakata. Nice. And I, I wish we could talk more, but uh, we've actually already reached time for oh, this interview. Just time edit flies. it down, Matt. Edit it down. Oh, I kidding. wish. I wish. Uh, but I think another educational interview with Ryan Shuckle, a lot of tidbits that listeners can can find in this interview and ryan always appreciate you being on being so willing to be asked all these questions and talk about the great things that that you're doing and moving and advising forward so of course if anyone has any questions that wants to connect what's the best way that they can reach out to you so my twitter handle is at r d s c h e c k e l that's r d shekel um of course my email address at our institutions ryan.shekel at ttu.edu texastechuniversity.edu. Um, would love to chat uh, always. Um, you know, it's one of the things that I don't know if we'll ever, ever think differently about connecting with people um, via video chat anymore. Uh, but I would love to do that uh, or just email or just on Twitter, or whatever works best for y'all. Um, I'm happy to have conversations. And I promise I won't talk as much uh, as Matt did during this interview. <laughs> Ryan, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is so awesome. You know, I, I love this. Um, it's, a, it's a great support for the advising communities and, and advisors out there. Um, and, you know, I'm really interested interested to see who else is listening. So if you ever find out that there are folks outside the advising community who are accessing uh, this content to understand what our profession is about, um, I think that there's some really fascinating things there. Oh, yeah. At the Cincinnati conference, I had a lot of people that, that listened to the podcast, which was, I was just amazed and Looking forward to doing more of these. So cool. thanks again, Ryan. Always something you can learn listening to Ryan and best to you on your two years as chair for the theory, philosophy, and history of advising community. But before we get to our next interview, let's hear from Dane Zanowski from Temple University and find out what's going on over on Dane's desk on our Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. Dane, take it away. Hello, Adventures in Advising podcast listeners. This is Dane here to tell you about some new Dane's Desk videos that we have up on the YouTube video channel for Adventures in Advising. First is one of my dear friends and colleagues from Drexel University, Michalina Salavanti, as she talks about some lessons that she learned during the pandemic when advising remotely. And then a, a new video that we have coming up soon is from Philip Wilkerson. He's an industry advisor at George Mason University. And Philip talks about the importance and the integration of academic advising and career advising. So be sure to check that one out as well. Again, these are Dane's Desk videos that you can find on the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. 
Feel free to connect with me through LinkedIn or Facebook if you have ideas for future topics or if you want to be a guest on Dane's Desk. And as always, keep advising. Thanks, Dane. There's 13 episodes of Dane's Desk to check out on our YouTube channel. Each episode is a mini interview, so you can get a lot of tidbits of info in a short amount of time. And while you're watching those videos, hit that subscribe button and stay up to date. Coming up now, it's my chat with Karen Archambault. Delighted to be welcoming back a friend of the Adventures in Advising podcast and somebody I am happy to call a friend as well. That is Dr. Karen Archambault, who is Vice President, Enrollment Management and Student Success at RCBC. Karen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, this has become our annual tradition following the the first interview, which uh, was in person at the the conference, uh, which is now hard to believe that was uh, a couple of years ago, and obviously virtual since then. How how has the past year been for you? It's almost uh, exactly a year, I think, since we were last speaking. So, how have the the past twelve months treated you? Well, you know, I think for like for so many others, I think even though at the time we talked last, we were what just about six months into the pandemic. But I think um, I, like so many other people, still had the belief that um, this was going to be ending soon. And for me, as a as a mom of a, a young child, um, I I was continually hopeful for you know school would return to normal and things would return to normal and all that and so i think a lot of the last year has been spent figuring out what the not normal looked like i'm not a fan of the phrase of new normal because that that sort of suggests that this becomes that that waiting our way through a pandemic becomes normal and i i'm not i'm not okay with that um but i think it's been a lot of figuring out um what looks good for our students? What do they want? What do they need? Um, you know, we're a commuter institution. So what does it look like when students are um, with their families and maintaining their their all of the things that come with their families in a pandemic and moving everything to uh, being online and all of those things. I think so much of the last year has been spent in figuring out how to do those things, not as an emergency, but as a part of our reality. Um, and so I think there's a there's a lot to that, to being able to say we are we're now a year since you and I last spoke, but 18 months since um, this all began. And I think we're you know for us we're we're back on campus now full time, um, for better or for worse. And really figuring out what um, what it looks like to continue to be responsive to our students. Um, for me personally, as well, this this last year has been a, an interesting one because we, uh, you know, my my boyfriend and I joke that we weren't able to go anywhere, but we had a lot more time to do things because our you know our our kids weren't doing any of their activities, so we spent a lot more time outdoors and we spent a lot more time being able to relax and, and things that you don't do when everything is is moving at a very fast pace. 
Um, so as much as I, I don't want to have another pandemic, there's certain good things to be drawn from it as well um, in terms of being able to, to sort of slow down a little bit. Um, and then from an Akata perspective, when you and I first spoke back in 2019, um, I think I, I what I told you was that I wanted to take a nap. Um, because that was the end of my presidency, and you know any position like that is is inherently um, time consuming and and draining um, in a in a good way, but still draining. And so in the in the last year, I've uh, been able to sort of reconnect with Nakata projects without necessarily it being part of Nakata leadership. So we've been. Um, We've been we're we're in the process of finalizing the third edition of uh, advisor training and development. That text started literally weeks before the pandemic shut everything down. Um, Rebecca Hapes and I signed on to be editors of that at the end of February in 2020, and so we're 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 coming up to the end of the intensive writing and editing and, and development of that text. Um, and then on the heels of that project is the advisor uh, advising administration text that's going to be um, coming out in 2023. But I, I'm I'm writing a chapter in that, um, which I'm very excited about because it's really for me, it's the connection from um, from Nakata pretty directly to the work that I do every day. Um, and so that's that's fantastic. Um, and then we've also just institutionally from my own work at my institution, we've um, we picked up a, a Title III grant, which is a multi-million dollar uh, grant to support institutional change to promote um, student success. And then uh, we also just recently uh, were awarded a Center of Excellence for Veteran Student Success, which basically allows us to build um, space and community for our veteran students. Um, and we're also just actually launching in a couple of hours. We are launching uh, our connection with ACE, the American Council on Education, for the Learner, uh, Learner Success Lab, which is another um, initiative to really make institutional change. So it's collaborative across our um, student affairs units and our uh, academic units to try to really change our institution dramatically. Um, so all that to say that it's it's been a really busy year. <laughs> it's despite uh, despite my comment about having more time to rest, it's also been a very busy year. Um, but I think in very good ways, and I think that's the um, the the challenge of a pandemic is to figure out how to survive, um, how to come through intact. Um, and then to figure out how to make meaning out of it, like it is for so many other things. How do you how do you take it as a learning experience? Um, and so that's that's kind of where I am right now. Yeah, so busy as as you usually are. <laughs> and I, I, I laugh because, yeah, when I asked you, I said, uh, I think the, the one of the questions when I was um, interviewing you at the conference in 2019 was, what next? And you said, a nap or uh, and I, I don't think you've taken a nap since then Karen by, by, the, by the sounds of things <laughs> maybe maybe but I, I, I and there, you, yeah so clearly you, you have lots of great projects in in the work and I suppose we we might come back and touch on some of those but I am I suppose curious last year well, in in person, we discussed your presidency. You were just coming to the end of it. Last year, you had a year on to to reflect. 
two years on and you know the the i suppose we've had the impact uh, of covid um we've had um you know changes at at nakata and and change is in, inevitable and and you know change can can sometimes be positive but change you know it requires adjustment for for everyone um but there is still so much great work being done but i'm just interested two years removed from from being president reflections on your time learnings just for for listeners i mean we we are recording this um just about a week before the um, annual conference and the opportunity for many people to meet up again potentially for for the first time in in quite a while so yeah just as as a former president always interested in your thoughts so um i i was actually thinking about this the other day because I was looking at my schedule for the annual conference and the last time that I was at physically at the annual conference and for probably six years prior to that, I almost never made it to a session because my days were so packed with um, leadership responsibilities, be they meetings or, um, you know, walk arounds to say thank you or or whatever they were. Um, my my schedule was was frequently not of my own making, um, and so as I was looking at the conference this year, I I got very excited about the concept that I might be able to see things that were um, of interest to me, and that were directly related to the work that I do. Um, I'm also quite honestly, you spoke of change, and um, Melinda is so amazing. Um, and I have had the the honor and privilege of working with her for a very long time because um, she got her start and I did in region two of the association in the mid-Atlantic uh, region of the United States. And um, so we've known each other for, for many, many years. And when I saw that she was selected for the position, um, I thought what a, a, a phenomenal choice that was. And um, largely because what I have always seen with Melinda is her ability to, first of all, be forward thinking um, and to really be thinking about what next, which is um, my own approach as well. So I, I love to see that in a, in a person to, um, to never rest on laurels and always be looking for what, what's the next great way to move a project or in this case, the association forward. Um, the other thing that I love about Melinda is that, quite honestly, she's so damn smart. Um, and she is willing to challenge people and challenge assumptions without um, ever having anyone feel like they weren't a welcome guest in her presence. And so that um, that combination of things, I'm I'm just so excited to see where the association goes next. And I think there's there's no question that when someone who has a presence like Charlie Nutt, um, that they they leave incredibly large shoes to fill. And I think of the the many conversations I've been in where folks have said um, that Charlie asked them to be involved or Charlie identified um, a, a way to connect them with someone else or or identified a um, a skill set in them and, and, and all of those things. And I think that's so incredibly valuable. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, Melinda is now the right leader to bring us into that what's next. Um, you know, that that question of how does the association now at 14,000 members 
plus, how does it um, how does it move to being something that is less dependent on that individual relationship and more able to to really move the the entire profession forward into you know the you know Nakata 2030 or or something like that. So I'm I was thrilled to see it. I think it's a um you know I think it's such an interesting change to happen during this time when we don't have the ability to physically connect that we don't you know we haven't all been in the same space. Um and I'll say quite honestly whenever I talk about Nakata and I talk about my relationships within Nakata um people who are in other associations think I'm crazy. Um and I think that's a phenomenon that a lot of us experience because when I, I think about folks who I put on the the sort of top of my personal list of, you know, the the people who I would depend on in, you know, for anything, people I would call at three o'clock in the morning and I know they'd answer the phone. Um, if I had to name my top five people, at least two of those spots would be filled by Nakata people. Um, and if I went to my top 10 or my top 20, many more spots would be filled by people from this association. Um, and so the I, the the fact that we get to be coming in person and that I get to spend that time connecting um, rather than rather than meeting, which because those are two very different things, um, that is that is incredibly exciting to me. And I'm really, really looking forward to to flying to Cincinnati next week um, because that is, um, you know, that that one time a year, I, I frequently feel like it sustains me. For, for a good six months or more after that meeting, I feel like I got I got my Nakata fix and then I'm I'm good for a while. Um, so I think that's a that's that's just an right now you and I talking just before the conference is a um, is a very pro Nakata time for me because I'm so looking forward to to those reconnections. Yeah, and I I think there'll be a lot of listeners who um, by the time this comes out, the conference will you know, have, have passed, but mm -hmm. they will be able to empathize with that. And I, I, I can, in terms of what you're saying in relation to Belinda, absolutely. Matt and I were fortunate to speak to her back in April, I think, for our um, episode that came out just at the beginning of May. And it was a few days after um, we had done the first interview that it was announced that she would be um, the new executive director. And she very kindly came back on and, and, and uh, gave an additional piece. And just her, her interaction, her curiosity, her knowledge, um, and her vision were, were quite um, phenomenal. So mm -hmm. um, I think it is a, a very exciting time. And any new leader coming in, um, you know, it's like co coming in after a, a successful coach on a sports team. You got to have your own way of doing it, and it, it takes a little bit of time. And probably, it, 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 COVID would probably was both a challenge, but potentially offered a, a little bit of a pause where we weren't so much on the the treadmill the entire time. So um, I'm very excited to see what happens over the next few years. And you did mention that you know, um, COVID had given you the opportunity to spend you know maybe a bit more time outdoors and, and reflect a little bit and I, i'm thinking you know for listeners karen especially when you're involved in say the the third edition of advisor training and development and also um the 
the second uh, uh, edition of the uh, advising administration. Are there things that you know you have learned um, or or taken from the last year? Be they COVID, you know, be they in re- relation to COVID or just learnings from you know your time after being president that you're kind of going to bring to your work or that you have um, brought to your work or um, anything, any new approaches, you know, in relation to your work with students. I, I'm, I'm thinking back to, I, I remember our conversation last year and you mentioned to me one of the reasons you'd got in, involved uh, with, in working in, in higher ed was that one of your um, your former professors had had said to you that you are really good at working with, with college students, that that still remains true, undoubtedly. So always curious to, to see where, where you're at and any, any learnings you can share with us. Sure. So I think... Um... You know, my my mom and I have a have an ongoing. I don't know if it's a joke or just a statement on. You know, if it's just her statement on my life, um, but she has she has long teased me, probably for you know, twenty five plus years. She has teased me that I don't know how to work unless I'm working at a hundred. Um, you know, I I I'm not very good at taking a break. I'm not very good at. Um, at not having 40 things on my plate. And I, I have a tendency to say yes, no matter what, um, you know, and, and I think it's the inherent helper in me. Somebody asks me to do something and I, I make the assumption that they're asking because they need my help. And so I, I, I step in. Um, and I think the last year has um, somewhat refocused me. Um, I've said no to more things in the last year, though the people around me would probably question whether that's true or not. Um, But I have said no to more things in the past year than I probably have in the five years prior um, combined. And when when I think about the the advisor training and development book in particular, um, there were a couple things that we included in this edition of the book that were not part of the advisor training and development landscape when the last edition came out. And um, certainly the core competencies is is a the, probably the most critical difference between this edition and the last. But the thing that I think is, is maybe most interesting in the difference in the book is that we included a couple of chapters that were not part of the discussion a few years ago. Um, one is on intercultural competence. Um, and intercultural communication. And I think that's so incredibly important in thinking about how we view ourselves as professionals. Um, But even more so from a COVID lens, we have a chapter on mentoring and we have a chapter on self-care as part of professional development. And I think those two chapters really speak to a different kind of view of training and development than the idea that you show up, you receive information, Um, or you receive skills, and then you go and you implement those skills. Um, And so the the chapter, and each one of them also has um, has what Nakata calls a voices from the field. So, uh, you know, a a firsthand account attached to the more theoretical or or research-based chapter. Um, And each of those chapters and each of those voices from the field, I think, really speaks to the need um, that, that so many of us, myself included, realized or maybe clarified in the past year um, that even when we are in our role as higher education professional, 
we're, we're also more than that. Um, and we are human at the core of it all. And we are, even when we're looking at advisor training and development, we are human beings with needs. And we have needs for connection, needs for uh, support, and needs for self-care. Um, and so the, the two voices from the field in particular, the, um, the mentoring one was written by uh, Gavin uh, Farber and the uh, self-care one was written by Jake Rudy. And I think they both really capture the, um, the, the way in which those, those things about looking out for yourself and having support really supports your students in the end. Um, and I'll say in particular, Jake's Voices from the Field speaks from a COVID lens. Um, and it speaks from the lens of burnout in the face of, of COVID. And I think, um, first of all, I'll just say, I mean, Jake was my ELP mentee or is, I guess, for the next week. Um, and did such a phenomenal job on this Voices from the Field. I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of him, both as his mentor and as his editor. Um, but I think it really captures that sense of um, people need to look out for themselves in order to look out for their students. Um, and if nothing else, I think that's what we what we gained in this past year is the need to figure out how to avoid burnout before it happens. Um, the need to look at morale, which is something that we are, um, you know, my my institution, my division is is diving into headfirst because our morale has been incredibly challenged in the last year to year and a half. Um, and so I think those are the spots where I see those connections between like life and work and Nakata is in the way that um, that that I have need needed to refocus. Um, and I, you know, I, I will always go back to, and I may have, I may have shared this with you last year because I don't remember when it happened. Um, but one of my, one of my team members commented to me after a meeting that um, I'm, as the vice president, I'm so much more human now than I was before COVID happened because um, my team sees my cats trying to step in the middle of a meeting and they see my daughter with Barbies just out of, you know, just outside of the the view of the camera going, mommy, 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 can we play now? Can we play now? And so I think that um, that recognition of humanity is is hopefully the thing that I've, I've gained a little bit more of in the past year. And I, I hope that both for myself and for the people around me, that that's something I can hold on to. As I'm, as we move forward and we get into whatever the next phase of normal looks like, I think that that's really useful and insightful, and and kind of thank you for for sharing it. I think it's it's so needed, and on both on the mentoring and and self care piece. But when you're talking in relation to intercultural competencies and communication, I suppose that's that's my hobby horse. I keep banging the drum um, mm-hmm. for. We need to do that, particularly I feel institutions should do that with our students. I know certainly over here, and and I was actually talking to colleagues in the UK about this recently, one of the things we have a tendency to do is when international students come in, we we do work with them about about culture and, you know, but we do no work with our our, um, students. 
students or home students to say, you know, what what culture is and, and cultural learnings. And if you have a better, you'll never understand everything. But if you can understand that, you know, why, why some of the differences exist, it might lead to um, to less frustration. And I think that can go across the board for, for students and um, and staff and, and faculty as well. Um, I know one of the other areas that that you are in, involved in, Karen, uh, alongside all your other work, um, you you are um, involved in um, teaching as well. If I'm if I'm not wrong on on that, um, and and just I suppose um, you know in in terms of of that of your work there, um, and I think it's on a number of different doctoral programs. Um, is is that something that has kind of continued during COVID? Did 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 that the teaching method have to change, or um, just in in relation to to that role? Just interested in in hearing a little more a- around that. Sure. So in um in the past twenty years or so, um, I've taught at the undergraduate level, at the master's level, and at the doctorate level, doctoral level, and um. Back in the fall of 2018, so well before COVID started, um, I stepped away from teaching in the classroom. Um, I continued to teach online, but I stepped away from teaching in the classroom because, quite honestly, it, it just became too hard to, to navigate the time frames um, and to try to figure out how to be, because my own institution is a community college, so we have the first two years of, of the degree. And I was at that point, you know, I was, I was teaching more advanced classes. I was teaching in a master's program. I was looking at teaching in a doctoral program. Um, and so in the, in the fall of 18, when I came into my current position, I, I took a step back from teaching in the classroom and went just to teaching online. Um, my online teaching is, uh, has been at the doctoral level primarily for, uh, for a few different institutions, um, primarily teaching the um, history of higher education, but also doing work with doctoral students on uh, dissertations. On um, you know, we one of the programs that I work with has a, uh, a an experiential learning uh, component, and so I've worked with students as a mentor in in that work. Um, and I'm currently working with uh, a colleague on developing a new course on community college partnerships. For a doctoral program um, that I've that I've been a mentor with and worked with doctoral students uh, on dissertation as well, so the 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 immediate shift wasn't one that I felt um, because my teaching had already been online, so I didn't have a change in method. Um, what I did have was a change in the way my students experienced class because they were certainly all used to doing online. You know, they were, they knew what they signed up for. It wasn't a a sudden change for them, but they were navigating a lot more in their space about being an online student. So where previously many of them did their online work, did their, you know, we, we have set times where we still meet. So it's, it's a synchronous, um, there's a level of synchronous activity to the online course. And Many of them would come midday. They would close their office door and they would come during their lunch hour. Well, for many of them, that became more complicated because their lunch hour was also now their kids' lunch hour. Or it was the time when their kids had to get logged in to this session or that session for their schools. Or it was the time when, um, you know, a, a 
family member, a, a parent, or a um, you know an older a, a, an older adult who they were caring for needed some kind of care at that time. So I think there's a um, even though we were online, we were always going to be online, and we knew we were going to be online. There was still a shift um, in terms of expectations, not expectations about the quality of their work or even the quantity of their work, but difference in expectations in the way it was done. Um, and that took me a little bit of time to adjust to purely because in my head it was, well, you knew you were going to be online. We all knew this. We, you know, we planned for online here. This is different from the times when we had to shift. Um, but I think that all worked out relatively well in the fact that I think everyone has become, or at least I hope that everyone has become a little bit more forgiving about the ways that our, um, our lives and our, you know, our, our, a lot harder to compartmentalize. It's a lot harder to say my work life is my work life and then I have my home life and then I have my my student life. Um, those things overlap a lot more than they than they used to. Um, the other thing though is that I this fall um, I actually returned to the classroom. So I learned to I returned to the face-to-face -face classroom just as many institutions are returning to face-to-face -face classrooms. And that was um, that still is very interesting because I have a very small class. It's a it's a master's level class. Um, it is on history of higher education. Um, but it's also informed differently, not only by covid, but also because it um, the course has always had a strong equity lens to it. Um, but as I said to my class, you know, four years ago, the first with the last time I taught the class, I taught it from this framework, which is a very, you know, white privileged framework of um, look how far we've come. Um, and in the last four years, my own lens on that content has shifted dramatically um, to be less about how far we've come and more about, first of all, how far we haven't come. And second of all, how challenging it is still for our students to be within environments that were never built or intended for them. Um, and it's a it's been a very significant shift for me that is that dramatically changes the conversations that I have in the classroom. Um, and I think those benefit from being in person because I think there's a there's a casualness to our in person. Um, conversations and the way that people use body language and the way that people um, show up physically in the classroom that I think is very different than it would have been having those conversations um, virtually. Um, you know, I, I see the way that people shift in their seats or I see the way that um, that they they fumble or they they twiddle with their with their hands. Um, and I, I can see it now in a way that I don't think I recognized how much I was missing being online. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting because now I'm, you know, Thursday evenings, I'm back in a face-to-face -face classroom um, and navigating the questions of what happens if a student shows up without a mask because we are, you know, we're, we're mask required in our classrooms. Um, you know, what do you do with the student who shows up for an evening class without a mask um, and how does that student manage being turned away 
Um, and then how do you work with that student to navigate that work and, and all that? So it's really been it's it's been a fascinating experience because I was out of the face to face classroom for so long that for me, it's very much about returning to the classroom, but also returning to the classroom that is very different than it was when I left a few years ago. Absolutely. And I, I knew we'd get some great insights from just asking that. I, I, and I think I'm, I'm struck by a number of things. You know, I suppose there um, might be among some people an assumption that, you know, if you were teaching online already, well, sure, how, how can it possibly have changed? But as you rightly point out, the world changed for, for everybody. So it didn't matter that, you know, people were used to the online, you were still navigating um, teaching and learning in, in a pandemic and, and really interesting, I suppose, to to hear about the return to face-to-face -to -face teaching as well. And pro probably we're all maybe more, more conscious of what's going on in the physical space now because we have been online and and so the differences between the two are are highlighted and and we are more aware and i think the the bravery on, on your own part in terms of acknowledging that you know there are there are still such such a long way for us to go and there's so much we we don't and, and you know still don't understand but putting putting our hands up to acknowledge that and looking at things through a, a different frame. So I think that's uh, really important that we we do that a, as well. I suppose one of the things maybe to come back to, Karen, that we you touched on earlier and um, that I'm, I'm interested in and, and I think maybe listeners would be as well, just um, because we, we don't have anything um, or maybe it has a different title, but in terms of the Learner Success Laboratory, um, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, um, what that is and, and what that means for the institution and what's involved? Sure. Um, so this is a, a project through the American Council on Education. Um, they started this actually during COVID. They started a cohort of 10 institutions. Um, we are cohort number two. And um, it's a wide range of institutions. Um, we are the only community college. There is a uh, I believe nine of the 10 institutions um, are from the states, but one is from Mexico. There are private institutions. There are public institutions. Um, they range in size. There's there's lots of different lots of different people, lots of different uh, environments there. Um, and really what the intention is, is to consider from a strategic lens um, what it means for an institution to radically change the way that it thinks about student success. Um, there are, it is, it's basically set up with a, a shared leadership between academics and student affairs, um, but it is intended to bring together people from all over the institution. So it looks at questions of leadership and structure. It looks at questions of both curriculum and co-curriculum. Um, it looks at questions regarding um, diversity and equity and inclusion as a lens to consider the entire project. Um, it looks at data and, uh, you know, what does it mean to not just have data, but actively use it? Um, and it's a two-year project, um, and it is a project that is, um, we basically were assigned a coach to, to guide us through this process because it's, it's not entirely removed from institutional strategic planning 
or from an accreditation review or something like that. But it's really about how do you make those kinds of things actionable? How do you make them, um, how, how does this report, unlike some of those other things, how is it used as opposed to being something that sits on a shelf? Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled because I, I kind of, um, you know, I got it in an email one day. And I'm very fortunate that I have a, uh, I have a president who um, I, I will say I don't know of anything that's, you know, that has an intention of improving the institution that he would say no to. Um, so I, you know, I, I went to him and said, this looks really interesting to me. Can I investigate this further? And um, I had an interview with ACE um, and then got the news that we were, you know, we were accepted into the cohort. And I think there's such value to that kind of collaboration amongst different institutions that all see common intentions and common goals. Um, because, you know, it's not it's not unlike Nakata, where no matter which students you're serving, everybody's looking for their students to be successful. Right. They're they're looking for their students to gain a credential, whether it's a certificate or it's a a, a, um, a degree or, or whatever. They're looking to help students meet their goals. They're looking for students to uh, to have connections and, and human experiences with the institution and with the advisors in particular for Nakata. Um, and so this is our really exciting project because it um, in some ways forces us out of our comfort zone um, because it's looked at through a lens outside of our own. So it's not, um, you know, strategic planning and uh, accreditation is often looked at from the lens of how do we see us, um, but this allows for us to be challenged in those assumptions and to question for ourselves, what, what would this look like through the lens of another institution? What would it look like from these people who don't know my institution and don't know anything about us? Um, so we, as I mentioned earlier, we literally launch uh, today um, from the time that you and I are recording this, uh, it's less than two hours to our launch of that project. Um, and so the from now until uh, 2023, this will be a, a major project for our institution and really looking at how we're able to um, to move forward as an institution to better serve our students. It, it sounds fascinating. And what I love about it is what it, it sounds like sometimes, sometimes, not not all the time, but higher ed can be really good at policies but maybe not implementing procedures and it, it sounds like that the aim of this is very much on the procedure like implementing those um procedures and, and ensuring that um the, the policies are, are are made real and it's also um fascinating to me that here we are recording this uh, in October 2021 and we've mentioned two projects um that you know will kind of be coming to fruition in 2023 so we're happy can't be that far until we really are talking about the 2030 plans yep um Karen I you know I we could probably talk for another hour and there'd still be lots to say for listeners who you know want to to get in touch with you um who to get to get more info insights um is there a way that that people can reach out to you Sure absolutely um the only challenge with it is being able to spell my last name um because it's you know that's that's always everybody's challenge but your anyone is welcome to email me at um 
it's my first initial and last name, so krshambo at rcbc.edu. Um, I would say to find me on social media, but I am uh, horrible at keeping up with Twitter. I do have, you know, you, you tweet me or you message me on Twitter and I'll see it. Um, but I'm awful about keeping up with it. But that's KL underscore Archambeau um, on Twitter. And uh, I'm I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm, I, most of it is, uh, quite honestly, you know, pictures of my kid because I think she's pretty cute. Um, but uh, otherwise, I'm, I'm always interested in hearing from folks and would love to continue that conversation. Perfect. And uh, your your name will be in the show notes. So they, they will Perfect. be able to, to, to get to get the spelling. So it'll be good. Really, all that remains at this point, Karen, is to thank you for taking the time to, to chat to me and to wish you continued success in your career. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yep. I always enjoy speaking with Karen. She's a fountain of knowledge, and I thought she shared some great insights into mentoring, self-care, and avoiding burnout. It was also fascinating to hear about her work and the various projects she's currently undertaking. I want to leave you with an old Irish blessing. May the most you hope for be the least you get. And a little bit of the Irish language, so I'll slay Sloan Gafol which means goodbye for now. That will do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to each episode. We truly appreciate it. If you don't follow us already, check us out on social media, Advising Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Head on over and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Adventures in Advising. And of course, subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the episodes coming out every first and third Monday of the month. Take care, sending positive vibes your way. And for those of us that are in spring registration or soon will be, we got this, okay? Take it one student at a time, one day at a time. Take care and keep advising. Don't want a complication, complication.